Welcome to the Deepwater Podcast. I'm Dave Mercer. I'm James Judd. And our goal on this podcast is to learn to make disciples the way Jesus made disciples. Yes, sir. Thanks for joining us on another episode. I'm just going to jump right in. Today we have a great interview with John Kelsey. Great. Well, I wanted to jump in. I want you to give everybody just kind of a three to five minute story of your background in disciple making because I kind of know it, but uh, there's probably some stuff I don't know. But then I really want to go through that post that you put on Facebook a little while back that I emailed you about. And I almost feel like I want to just discuss that point by point with you and pick your brain and let you flesh out some of those ideas a little bit more. So why don't you, okay, uh, why don't sure, you jump whatever. in, give me your three to five minute story on how you got started making disciples and how long you've been doing it now. Well, let's see. I actually grew up as a preacher's kid and my father would pastor little mission Baptist churches mm-hmm. and uh, in rural areas. And so I had been really churched and there was even a, a navigator in one of my churches growing up uh, who really kind of had a heart to try to train guys that were older than me. And so I, I'd heard about these things and I saw some of these things from a distance, but I just had so many um, kind of life issues and problems. It really wasn't until I was 19 and I was a second semester sophomore at the University of Oklahoma that I really think for the first time I got down to business with Jesus and was able to, to start embracing on a spiritual level the things I'd kind of been around for a number of years. And it was really because of some upperclassmen in my dormitory who were involved in the Baptist Student Union at OU who were memorizing verses and having quiet times every day. I I just don't think I had seen people my age really pursue Christ authentically. And so that was really interesting to me, and I was coming out of some major life problems. And so I think I was really hungry to grow. And and so uh, an older I was a, a sophomore. He was a senior, uh, a man from Bush, Alaska, who came to OU to study math. I always wondered how he ended up at <laughs> OU, but yeah. he lived in my dorm. And this Eskimo really started meeting with me one-on-one and, and really helping me with quiet time and scripture memory. And then I started meeting with one of the BSU staff members the following year. And his name was Dave Edwards. And he really would just pray with me and talk about his quiet times. And we would walk around campus and he just, you know, wanted to talk a lot about my family and, you know, how I understood who the Lord was. We, we had to work a lot on just not only my vision for really what it means to be a disciple, but, you know, concept of God and just working through some, some bad decisions I'd made when I was younger. And, and really by the time I, I graduated OU, there was a major redirection where I came into OU wanting to be an eye surgeon Mm -hmm. and I graduated OU wanting to be a missionary to Central Asia. Okay. And so I I just really caught the disease for really making disciples. It was just really lived out in front of me with that campus ministry and, and my high school sweetheart, my girlfriend, Jen was being discipled by Sandra Barnett. And so she was really growing. And so we got married out of college and went to seminary and then a car accident six months into our marriage kind of, again, was another major turning point. We realized we wouldn't be able to live overseas mm. and make disciples. And so 
where could we go do that? And Max Barnett actually called me and said, why don't you come back to OU when you finish and you can make disciples here at OU and, and you could function like a missionary on campus. And so you worked for him for, was it six years? Yep. Mm-hmm. And then you took over and then you were the director of the... Yeah, that's right. Max retired. Max and Sandra retired in 2004. And it was a great six years of, and he would probably be somewhat embarrassed for me to even say this about him, but, you know, Max and Sandra are, are people that come around once every generation. They're just really mm-hmm. remarkable. Mm-hmm. And so to be in their home, we'd go on vacation with them. I didn't care, you know, that they were our parents' age, you know, right. to pray with him, to check his verses, to go witnessing with him. So much of learning was just watching him as he pursued Jesus and loved Sandra and went after college students. It was just absolutely remarkable, the best six years I had. And so Jen and I then stayed for another 12 years after that, leading the ministry. And the ministry grew, and we were able to bring on a lot of staff, and we wanted to create a staff training culture as well as reaching OU students with the gospel Mm -hmm. and making disciples and we planted the church along the way. It was just really some sweet time mm-hmm. those 12 years. And then I was uh, having a quiet time, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly that I needed to get ready to leave, and there was going to be a big change, and it really uh, caught me off guard. I, I wasn't expecting that. Everything was going great. Mm-hmm. And then, then within probably two months, He clearly led Jen and I to transition to join the Navigators. And so we did that in 2016. Very interesting. And how's that transition been from, are you still working with a number of college students or is it more working adults or what's, what's that look like and how's that transition been? It's been, it's been wonderful. It's at the same time hard. I think to be so embedded in a very specialized, intensive community for so long, like we were, Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I mean, you know, because just the practical reality of when you're not co-laboring around a certain group of people, you're just not as close to them anymore. Mm-hmm. That was really hard. And um, even though there was no conflict, it was, you know, when the Lord moves you, He moves you. And so we've really enjoyed getting to know a lot of the navigator staff around the country and and building relationships with them. And 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 the DNA is the same. You know, we. We all want the same things, which has been wonderful. Right. We work with young professionals. So our mission is called 20. The Navigators have 11 missions. Uh, the ones that most people know about are their military empathy um, and then college students. Mm-hmm. But they have uh, a mission to the workplace. They have a mission to neighborhoods. They have a mission to the inner city and the poor. They have a mission to young professionals the 20s. Mm-hmm. So different things. And it's a newer mission. It's only about five or six years old. And it came out of just the reality that they saw more and more people, James, are coming out of the military, coming off the college campus, and they are not launching well into local churches. They're not launching well into the workplace mm-hmm. where, you know, they're being a good employee and sharing the gospel appropriately. Uh, there's just a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. on what does it look like to really walk with God in your mid to late 20s. And so we get a chance to step into that, speak to that, uh, form some groups. And, and James, I'm a, I'm a son of a pastor. 
my wife, her grandparents, for her pastors. We've planted the church. We love the local church. It's because of that passion for the church. We really felt like this was a good fit for us because we can go out there again as missionaries and we can work with a group of 20s that really aren't connected to local churches. Mm-hmm. And we can get them into community. And then our long-term vision is to deploy them into local churches to make disciples over the long haul. Mm-hmm. And then there's another group of people, James, that are very committed to their local church. But for whatever reason, no one is asking them hard questions about the workplace, and they don't have a, um, opportunities to, to step into the theology of the workplace, of how to uh, make disciples in the workplace. And so we can kind of come alongside those 20, and it's more of a coaching relationship where we can bring some value and challenge them and encourage them. And then they're immediately going back into their local churches and, and they're having impact and they're able to be more effective in their professional calling as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's great. And it seems like it's really needed. So that's right. I hope you're, I hope you're having great success at that. We're trying. Yeah. And if it's a five to six year old ministry or uh, what'd you call it? Mission. Mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's still pretty, pretty in the infancy in terms of, in terms of disciple making and ministry. So, I hope it it begins growing exponentially. Amen. One of the things I wanted to visit with you about, you put a, a really long post on Facebook a while back, and it was uh, it was so long it took you three days to write it over time. <laughs> and you had you had six different sections in there, and I thought I would just talk to you a little bit about each one of them. In the general context, you were saying, okay, I decided I'm going to actually read you the. Post by John Kelsey, verbatim. I really thought I had a robust understanding of intentional disciple-making. You can't spend 26 years around Max and Sandra Barnett as a student and staff member without growing exponentially. I could not be more thankful for being a part of their legacy. At the same time, I am just beginning to realize the vast depth of developing generations of intentional disciple-makers. Two environments over the last few years are shaping my thinking. One, Developing generations of disciple-makers in the local church, particularly one focused on serving the poor and disenfranchised. 2. Developing generations of disciple-makers in a diverse professional demographic that includes the technical trades, military, law, engineer, and graduate students. These two environments have led me to several conclusions. 1. Developing generations of disciple-makers to be fruitful over the long haul is much more difficult and takes longer than I understood it to be. There are no shortcuts to developing lifetime laborers for the kingdom. You need to know what you're doing and not give up. You also need to rely a lot more on the Holy Spirit than you do right now. Yes, I think so much of the way we, particularly those of us who make a living by the gospel, our perception is framed by you know our experience. And so Jesus found me in a campus ministry. Mm -hmm. I really cut my teeth in a campus ministry of learning how to really, you know, lead others and shepherd. And so just the nature of that demographic, as you well know, about it's not really a quarter a year. It's really closer to a third uh, of your ministry turns over every year. Mm -hmm. And so in about three years, you almost have a whole new ministry. And, And so we had been, particularly at the OUBSU, we had, We've become highly, highly specialized in training students as deeply as possible in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm so thankful for that because I think, you know, there's, there's some, some real advantages that now as I'm working with engineers and FBI agents or um, teachers and we have, you know, a little bit more time and I'm seeing people coming from different backgrounds from all over the world. And now they're with us in our twenties uh, group that's meeting. Uh, it, it's, it's just much more complicated. It's not as, um, it's not an assembly line, which I think sometimes I've felt that way in a campus ministry environment. And, and then just unpacking some of the brokenness and helping people move through some hurt and receive healing in the Lord. Mm-hmm. The, the whole process, James, is slowing down mm-hmm. a lot. Besides is... the fact that these young professionals just aren't as available as a college sophomore would be. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask you was just how much of a factor is it the time factor, working a full-time job factor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely big. Um, people still do what they want to do, and that's interesting. I know everybody's busy, mm-hmm. but we still find time for the things that are important. But I think trying to create that space in a young professional's schedule, uh, it's harder. It's much harder. Yeah, Yeah, and at least I know for us, once we had kids, then that was like a whole nother step mm. of like, oh yeah. man, you know, just feeling overwhelmed, just trying to get life done in general. Um, and then, you know, the amount of time you have to give outside the family, you know, you're, you know, discipling inside our family as well, but it, but that right. amount of time outside definitely is a, is a factor. What is some of, like, how, what are you doing to get around, not to get around that, but to deal with that? The time yeah, challenges. We, well, I think for, for Jen and I, uh, we've had to really manage our expectations. And we've had to go back and look at how we have traditionally tried to train people and communicate a vision for intentional disciple making and spiritual reproduction. And what does that look like if you can only meet with someone every other week or once a month? Mm-hmm. Uh, because some lessons, historically, we felt like were most effectively taught in rapid succession or, you know, with longer, you know, periods of time available. But now that that's not the case, we had to really go back from the ground up and look at what are the principles we want to communicate? How do we communicate it? And is the whole process reproducible for a young mechanical engineer who's Mm -hmm. engaged? Mm -hmm. Right. What are some of the changes that you've made coming out of that? Or what are some of your conclusions, I guess, or... Mm-hmm. Well, it's forced me, I, this is probably just pragmatism as much as anything, but it's really forced me to simplify, mm-hmm. to pare things down, and to really focus on, you know, the big rocks that need to go in first. And Max had always told me, listen, you, you've got to get people to a place where they can feed themselves spiritually. Uh-huh. If you can at least get that done, then they can be on a, a path to to grow over the course of their life, even if you're not around. So really simplifying and helping people get in the Word, to, to feed themselves. What does it look like to study the Bible for themselves? What does real prayer look like, scripture memory, and 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 all of these great spiritual disciplines that more, more than that, the why behind it, the purpose. I find with this generation, really more than any other that I've ever worked with, they need to understand why and and really commit to the heart before they step into the obedience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So we've got to be very good communicators as to uh, a little acrostic that I would, I would teach students, I would teach my staff, is tell them why, show them how, get them started, keep them going, and teach them to reproduce. And that really first part of tell them why is crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how are you finding people now? Like before you were on a college campus, uh, you guys already had a lot of momentum going anyway. You had some outreach. You had like all those things. How are you getting connected with guys now? You know, that you're focusing on young professionals and what's bringing you into well, their life or them into your lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I know my friends on the college campus work really hard, so it's not a slight, but I think, right. man, if I, knowing what I know now, I could go back to the campus <laughs> and kill it. Um, uh-huh. Because these 20s are spread all over everywhere and they don't have any real connection outside of our group. It's not like they all live around each other or go to the same class or anything like that or the same church. So about a third of our group has a navigator tie-in. They were involved with navigators in the military or in college. Another third of our group currently, we had some kind of personal relationship through campus ministry. And then the last third, nobody even knew who they were. They're a friend of a friend or a coworker, and they just showed up and boom. And so I, I find that we do try to um, connect with campus ministries that have an affinity for where for where we are and what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And we try to talk to their seniors and, and help them connect quickly if they're going to stay in Oklahoma City. But so much of it is just word of mouth that our group really loves and believes in what, what we're doing. And so they're inviting coworkers and neighbors to join us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Yeah. When, when you say your group, on a later point down, you talk some more about it, but are these people that you're like individually meeting with one-on-one or are these people that are all coming together? Does like everybody in the group know each other or are they only connected through you? Does that make sense? It does. And we actually had a meeting last night where I was explaining kind of the why, the, the why behind what we do. So we, we have built everything as kind of an a la carte model. So because these 20s are very busy and they're committed to their local church or they're in another small group Bible study over here, we don't want to be redundant. Mm-hmm. So we intentionally do a different thing each week that is unique. Not a lot of other people in the city are doing what we're doing. And so these 20s can come to that. They can come to everything. They can pick one or two things. as long, And it just needs to fit where they are right now. Mm-hmm. And so I would say a lot of the group knows each other, but there's others. They only come to certain things we do every month, and that's their point of contact. And then everything, James, is kind of the old funnel ministry that Max and Sandra taught me, where you have things to kind of get people in the front door and connected and then the deeper they get into the ministry, the more commitment, the more the opportunity for a real intentional training. And so we, we're trying to create a funnel so that people are saying, I really like hearing from a professional every month. I really like our, our men's and women's groups. I really like our service projects. I, I like our fellowship meals where we're out in the community, but I, I'm hungry. I want more. And we're like, okay, why don't you step into an intentional one-on-one disciple-making relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's offer that. Yeah. And are you at the point where, at this point in time in your ministry, are you and Jen the only ones offering one-on-one, or do you already have other people that are 
prepared and equipped that if someone needs one-on-one, you know, you can connect them to different people? That is a great question. Well, I think we had, we've had some people early on in our group who had some training, but as we looked around, there just weren't, because we, we had more people coming to our group than Jen and I could physically disciple. And so we were even asking around our city mm-hmm. for some older disciple makers who could step in and an engineer meet with an engineer and a teacher meet with a teacher. We thought that would even be more exciting if we could match people by location. Mm-hmm. But what we found was a lot of the older disciple makers just didn't have the capacity or we just we just didn't have the people around. So Jen started a group about uh, six or eight months ago where she's training some groups of women who can then be a next a next step to be able to offer one-on-one disciple making. And, you know, fellows, we're always a little bit slower, right? It takes <laughs> us longer to figure stuff out. So next month, we're going to launch a similar group of guys. And the goal is after about a year or 18 months to have a group of a half dozen guys who are confident and competent to take on one-on-one disciple making as well. Because we want to have that throughout every aspect uh, of our city if we can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really needs to be. Um, tell me again, how long did you think it was going to take you to develop them? Um, Jen has asked for an 18-month commitment. We're going to ask the guys to give us a year. It's going to be very intensive, mm-hmm. and then we'll evaluate after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm assuming most of these guys are coming in with a at least a good biblical background, or are yeah, they? that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in some ways I feel like it takes in some ways it takes less time to train people than I think, but another or maybe it takes less time to get people going and doing some things than I think, but more time than it it takes more time to really get them ready to be independent. That's right. 2. Developing generations of disciple makers to be fruitful over the long haul requires a greater degree of varied community input than I understood it to be. Tribalism and the inability to connect disciples to a larger movement are enemies to developing lifetime laborers for the kingdom. You need to help people contextualize the Great Commission in a much broader community. You also need to rely a lot more on the Holy Spirit than you do right now. Well, um, and I, I, I am probably, I know I'm guilty of this, I'm sure, along the way. You know, there's a sense that training ministries, ministries that are really committed to intentional disciple making, They know that they're in the minority, quite frankly, in the broader spectrum of American Christianity. And so there's a tendency to think we're really doing it well and not very many other people do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, arrogance can follow shortly thereafter. Max always used to tell me there's no one more dangerous than a freshman or sophomore who starts having quiet times (laughs) because they, they go back home to their home church some Sunday and, you know, they memorized one verse. And it just so happens that their pastor tries to quote the one verse they happen to know, and he doesn't, you know, get it word perfect from the pulpit. And so that student thinks, well, man, I know that verse. And so there's there's a tendency with young people who really get on fire about training and walking with God, they, they kind of think they've got the market cornered. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's parachurch ministries, unfortunately, that have that reputation. And so now working with these young professionals, I'm like, we... We really do need a village. We, we need people in local churches, in the professional ranks, parachurch. We, we need people to have multiple inputs to be able to effectively train someone and help them be all they can be for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I really am suspicious of an individual for sure 
but even a ministry that says they can they can churn out multiplying disciple makers on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, you just need other input. You mm-hmm. really do. Yeah, I think it feels tempting sometimes, especially when you do finally get it. And then you see everyone else, not everyone else, but you see a lot of people that don't get it. And it's a temptation to say like, like, don't mess with my people or don't mess my people up. Or, And I even remember when I first went in training to go overseas, they talked about that actually never seen a CPM anywhere that there was already a church. And part of their insinuation was that that in those in those areas they go into, quote unquote, a normal church and they kind of die off all of their reproduction or their multiplication and I think it's a challenge, but I think at the same time, like Jesus said, you know, like I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so there's like, I really think ultimately it should come back to the church in the most appropriate context, but it's kind of sometimes a challenge to get there. Well, that's right. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a great Baptist. I'm, I'm a better Baptist now than I think I've ever been. <laughs> um, and I work with the navigators now. Um, but it's been a delight to serve our local church. And yes, we want to see these movements catalyzed and sustained in the local church. But we see it in the New Testament. Paul had a missionary band. And I think we see, you know, current realities here. There's just certain things that local churches don't have the resources, the manpower to do at the time. And so if we can pool resources, if we can do some things that are maybe more a part of the broader church, Mm-hmm. then we can be more effective making disciples within our church. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And if we're going to, how to say it, if we're going to get disciple making to spread into a wider context, we also can't be, there's nothing worse than someone that's proud that wants to come in and tell you how to do things. Oh, I know. And it kind of sh- yeah. kind of shuts it off and you kind of have to, you have to be there and you have to earn the right to, to get a say. And uh, I think, yeah. I think that's a frustration, and I know it's a frustration for a lot of people that come back from overseas as well, or feeling like they have a lot to say, but but not people not being open to that voice. And sometimes maybe our voice isn't always the kindest either, or the most most gentle and caring. Yeah. Three, developing generations of disciple makers to be fruitful over the long haul requires a regular reexamination of ministry tools. We are in ministry information overload in this country right now. For those of us in full-time ministry, there is a combination of boredom with doing the same things over and over and pressure to create something new to offer the kingdom. The vast majority of lifetime laborers do not make their living from the gospel. They need simple, consistent ministry tools that they have had time to master in multiple contexts. Those of us leading disciple-making ministries must offer ongoing technical support for these ministry tools instead of focusing on the latest book or illustration. You also need to rely a lot more on the Holy Spirit than your favorite ministry tools. You know, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, and I tell you, James, so many people in these disciple-making ministries, God bless them, are highly creative, they're innovators. A lot of them have to raise their own support. and So they're just, they've been comfortable out on the margins creatively, they're activators, okay? So they are now in a ministry context where they're reaching people, leading them to Christ, discipling them, and lay people need tools. You know, the average layman, a gal, she's working 50 hours a week, he's working 45 hours a week. 
and they have family, they have responsibilities with their local church, and so they don't have time to create a lot of resources, and so lay people need some tracks to run in that are effective and reproducible, that makes sense, that they can have some Mm buy-in. But a lot of us who are actually leading ministries, well, we get bored, you know, using the same tool Mm -hmm. month after month, year after year. And so we're always experimenting and tweaking. And we go to a conference and we read a new book and we want to change everything. And we're not thinking about that, you know, these lay people are in a lot of ways in a more static environment uh, when it comes to disciple making than we are. So being sensitive to our demographic and, you know, just like Windows, uh, Apple offers support, maybe for an operating system that's even several years old, but it still works really well. Mm-hmm. You know, could we have that type of uh, a mentality as we're trying to train and equip lay people to make disciples in the workplace and in their local church over the long haul? Mm-hmm. Maybe if we could sharpen our tools as opposed to make new tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's tool overload. I mean, there's always another resource or handbook or conference. Uh, I remember Tom Ellis told me, you know, that we all have toolboxes and we fill it up with ministry tools. But he said in every garage, every guy, he's got some tools, but he's got one or two tools that he really likes. And he always finds a way to use that tool on any kind of job. And then I had an old pair of channel lock pliers that my dad gave me, no telling how old they are. And it's like, no matter what I'm doing, I just find a way to use those channel locks. They're just, they're comfortable. I can do almost anything with it. I wouldn't want to build a whole house with those channel locks. But I think it's the same way with our ministry tools that, okay, be exposed, have access to different things. But is there one or two main things that you're very comfortable with and you go back to again and again? Well, let's, let's affirm that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and somewhere I think, I don't know if you're guilty of it, I know I am, is I want results faster. And I think yeah. a lot of the, any, any tool that you've seen that has good results pretty well, or at least if it's a solid tool, like it took a while to get those results. And so if you change up all the time, you know, about the time you get momentum in one direction, you're switching it to another one. Yeah, that's right. Well, there you have it for today. We're going to leave the interview here and pick up next week, and we'll get the last three remaining points. And just as a reminder, I'll have the entire Facebook post posted on my website. You can visit it at luke5.com. Go to this episode, episode number 22, under the podcast link. I hope you have a good week making disciples, and until next week, I'll see you then.